sin. Well, this morning we want to dig into Ruth chapter 1 and look at Naomi's empty return. I'm using her interpretation of her circumstances in that title. Naomi returns empty. Let's just begin by reading chapter 1 together. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the fields of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they came to the fields of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the fields of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people to give them food. So she went forth from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you have shown with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is more bitter for me than for you. For the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods, returned after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to forsake you in turning back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, and more, if anything but death separates you and me. So she saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more to her. Then they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Now it happened when they had come to Bethlehem, All the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi? 
Yahweh has answered against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the fields of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now the author of Ruth, both human and divine, carefully constructed this short story like a play, like a, a, a drama. This is a, a screen, um, a screenwriter, if you will, um, that, that God has put together to help communicate a message. These are real events cast into story form. And, and so we want to follow along the different scenes as we move along. There are at least uh, at least three scenes and we're going to kind of follow along. There's an introduction. There's a there's a kind of a setting of the scene of of Naomi's situation. Doesn't really spotlight it, just tells you about it in narrator fashion, and then you hit the dialogue, and the dialogue just expands everything that's going on, and then at the end, we see Naomi's interpretation of that, and so that's kind of how we'll track along and follow through the story, uh, explaining what's there, but also trying to seek the timeless principles that, that are in the text that we want need to apply to our lives. So the first thing we're going to do is look at the stage, setting the stage for Naomi's emptying. She returns empty, but there's a, something that happens before that. Remember, she at the end of the end of the uh, chapter, she says, "I went out full, but came back empty." So, so we're setting the stage for Naomi's emptying. The first thing the author does is give us a time frame of when this when the, these events occurred. He says it in, in verse one. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged. Right? So there's a specific time period when the judges judge. Who are the judges? The judges are the men and women right, found in the book of Judges who were sent as deliverers. They were redeemers, uh, sometimes uh, of a larger area of Israel, but many times just of a localized area against a local enemy. So here, the, this is the, the setting. This is the time of the judges uh, before the time of the monarchs. The monarchial time, before King Saul would arrive, and we know that Saul was the people's choice, not ultimately God's choice, but really this, the book of Ruth is trying to bridge the gap between the chaos and the darkness and the apostasy of the time of the judges and King David, who really is the man after God's own heart, not a perfect man, and the, sin, the scriptures don't whitewash his sins, nor do they belittle them. But he is held up as the high water mark of holiness and righteousness and of people seeking God, of Israel worshiping the one true God. So Ruth helps us understand how Israel got from the dark days of the judges to the bright times of King David. That's what this does. The book does so many things. But its main purpose is to help us understand really the rise of the line of David, which we know from other scriptures is really also the line of the Messiah, the ultimate David, right? the one who would ultimately reign. And um, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. These events that, that we read here tell us that the rise of David almost didn't happen. And you say, well, couldn't? Couldn't God have brought David from another family? Well, I'm sure that he could have. But in his ordained method, David was to come 
through the line that includes Moabite blood. And how would that happen? So this line, this family line, this Elimelech's line was nearly eliminated. And for all intents and purposes, was over. There would be no lineage. But God provides a way to overcome that. So that's, that's really the, the overall picture. And yet, within it, there, there are just rich truths about, um, about God's providence, about how we respond to difficulty, whether we respond in faith and worship, or whether we respond in bitterness and abandonment. Now remember that the days of the judges are characterized by the last verse in the book of Judges, which you should be able to see if you're looking at Ruth 1, depending on how your Bible's formatted. In these days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Now you can get a little appreciation for that. If you just imagine on your ride home, if everybody started doing what was right in their own eyes on the road. And just think about that. Whether they stopped at a red light or not. Well, I don't feel like stopping. Or they don't want to stop at a stop sign, which regularly happens, but at least they're usually slowing down. There's a slide rather than a stop. But you can imagine the chaos. They said, well, no, I'm tired of driving on the left side. Now I want to drive on the right side. Chaos. And that's really what was going on in the times of the judges. Right? Spiritual chaos. Everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. And God would, would raise up these judges to protect people. Who are these judges? Deborah, Barak. Uh, you know some of the names. You're probably more familiar. Gideon you would be familiar with. You'd be familiar with Samson. Right? Remember, these, 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 these deliverers, if you know their lives, they're a mess. They're anything but righteous, but God uses them nonetheless to redeem and rescue his people. Uh, just to get a little glimpse of what the judges, times the judges is like, and I think this is this is uh, good for us to see this because it helps you understand the drastic contrast that Ruth paints when we get there. Look at Judges chapter 2. And I'll just read a few verses from that. Begin at verse 16. This is a kind of a, a general statement of the book of Judges. Chapter 2, verse 16. Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, just, just pause a minute and say, I, I, need, I need to mention that when we talk about judges, we're not talking about a, a courtroom judge. We're not talking about the type of judge who sits with a black robe and has a gavel in his hands, has authority in the room. These are deliverers. These judges are deliverers. They're, they're localized, temporary redeemers that God sends. So, Yahweh raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges either, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of Yahweh. They did not do as their fathers Now, when Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge and saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and suppressed them. But it happened when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has 
trespassed against my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will also no longer dispossess before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of Yahweh to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So Yahweh allowed those nations to rest, not dispossessing them quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So there's this cycle going on throughout the book of Judges. The people don't listen to Yahweh's voice. They don't listen to the covenant. They don't obey his instructions. Yahweh is displeased with them and sends one of the nations around them. Um, so that would be the, the, uh, the nations around them, the Canaanites and even the Moabites. That comes important later. Even the Moabites to suppress them. And the people would would call out to God eventually, and sometimes they wouldn't even call out to God. He would just they would just be moaning about their sad circumstances. They wouldn't necessarily even be there wasn't even like clear repentance sometimes in the book of Judges, and yet God, out of his pity, out of his compassion for his people, sent them judges to rescue them. And so there's just this this cycle that goes on for decades. Right? Where in the book of Judges is Ruth? We don't know. The author doesn't tell us and it's not important for us to know. But it is in those days when the judges judge. They're dark. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. Um, Now, the significance of painting, of understanding this scene, helps us to understand the drastic contrast that we're going to see in Ruth, in how Ruth acts, in how Boaz acts, and even eventually how Naomi acts. And, and the things that they do and of faithfulness and love for one another. And how they demonstrate really that faithful commitment. We call hesed, uh, faithful, God's faithful commitment. They give us some practical uh, practical demonstration of what faithfulness looks like when everybody else around you is doing what is right in their own eyes. And it's also significant that God raises up and rescues the royal line in these particular circumstances. The next thing, next part of important detail that that the author gives us is not only was this the day of the judges judged, but there was a famine in the land. In what land? The land of Israel. There was a famine in the land. Why is that significant? Well, you need to eat. Right? You and I don't know what that's like. Right? Thankfully. But there are famine in other place, famines in other places of the world even, even today. You have been hungry, no doubt, but you have never been starving. That's just the reality of the of the rea- uh, of America today. We have such an abundance that we don't even know what that's like. Uh, I think I mentioned before that that even the fact that you take out your garbage, most of you do anyway. You you take out your garbage is evidence of God's abundant provisions. I mean, just think about that. The reason you have garbage is because God's provided you with so much you're not eating your garbage. You laugh, but in famines, people eat the garbage. They would eat what you and I throw out. I mean, even sometimes eating leather just to try to find some kind of nutrients in the leather. So put yourselves in those shoes. There's a famine in the land. There's a family that's going to be introduced and a father needs to feed his family. There's a famine land. Why is there a famine land? The author doesn't tell us. Doesn't explain it. You can go to other portions of scripture and see that 
actually God used famine as a as a tool of discipline. He said, if you don't obey me, I'm going to cause the sky to be like steel. It's not going to give its rain. And if you don't have rain, right, then the crops didn't grow. They didn't have like uh, man-made irrigation uh, like we could today and drill and put a well and put a pump down there and, and you can irrigate. And if you go to Israel, you can see great green fields even when it's not raining. But it wasn't like that then. They depended on the rain for their crops. So there was a famine in the land and there, there was the, because of the of the the uh, geography in the area, you could get uh, a famine in the land in one area, but not that far away there'd be non-famine. Right? So that's what's going on when when they move to the fields of Moab. So there's this there's this famine. Right? The famine is not specifically stated to be a punishment of God, but we know that God controls all things. Right? So it is likely that this is a period where God is bringing judgment upon His people for their disobedience, for their apostasy, and there is no bread. Now, continue on in the story. And a certain man of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem. Right? Bethlehem actually means house of bread. So there's, there's some irony here. There's no bread in the house of bread because of the famine. And a certain man, his name is not told us right now, a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah, there's other cities called Bethlehem. It probably was a popular name. The house of bread. Yeah, I want to live in a house of bread. Lots of food. But this is Bethlehem in Judah. right? So that would be near Jerusalem. South of Jerusalem. This is Bethlehem of Judah. And he went to sojourn in the fields of Moab with his wife and his two sons. They're not named. Why is that? Because the focus here is really on Bethlehem and Moab. The two places that are named. We're going to find the name of the man in just a moment. But but right here, the, the author just wants us to see there's this land of bread. House of bread, devoid of bread. Then there's the land of Moab. And Moab was to the east of, of Israel. It was, a, it was on the other side of the Dead Sea. So if you, if you have a, a Bible with maps in the back, you can look in the map and you can see the land of Moab. It's east of Israel, right? Depending on which route they went, 50 to 100 miles is, is what it is uh, for them to, to go that. Just, and and what this, the author tells us that a certain man of Bethlehem went to sojourn in the fields of Moab. That word sojourn means he wasn't, he wasn't intending to move there, like permanently. He was just intending to go live there, feed his family. Right? This is a, a sojourn. What do we make of the sojourn? Is this, a, is this a move of faith or is this a move of faithlessness? Well, we don't know. The author doesn't tell us. I mean, God instructed Abraham to go to Egypt. Um, you've got other, other godly men that, that God instructs to go other places um, to find bread. But we don't have that here. So was Elimelech's move uh, a move of faith? We don't know. We're not told. Um, but we do know that we shouldn't be too harsh on him. There's a father living in a, in a time when everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Making a move that would have been very unpopular. That would have been perceived by his neighbors as disobedience to God. 
but he's doing it to feed his family. So while we can discuss and whether it was the right thing or not on, on this side of it, put yourselves in his shoes. He's got a family to feed. Now, could he have repented of, of Israel's sin and asked the Lord to provide? Yes. But that's not what happened. So you can look at it and say, hey, he should have done this and he should have done this. A lot of Jewish commentators are very harsh upon Elimelech. Um, but the author isn't. There's no condemnation. And that's how I prefer to leave it. Right? Was it the right thing to do? Well, the author doesn't say that either. But neither is he condemning Elimelech for this move, this sojourn to the fields of Moab. Now, the fields of Moab, that phrase is important because he's telling us that he didn't go into like the one of the walled cities uh, found in Moab. He's in the fields. He's there, um, probably as something like a, a servant um, working in the fields in order to get a little bit of the grain in the fields. He's there to feed his family. Now, again, why is why is the the the, the contrast or the the irony of all this is just so amazing? You have the house of bread with no bread, then you have Moab. What's Moab? Right? Well, Moab, the whole nation flows out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. That's where Moab comes from. And so they're like, they're related to the Israelites, but there's bad blood between them. They're the, they're the, like the, you know, those children. You know, the ones in the family that aren't supposed to be talked about because of their origination. Right? Uh, Lot's daughters got him after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's daughters were so desperate. Uh, they didn't see any hope at all. Uh, in a sense, they were so had no, no, no vision of God at all. They got their father drunk and lay with him and children came out of that. One of them was Moab. And the Moabite nation flows from that. But there's also bad blood between Israel and Moab because when the Israelites came back to go into the land, they went they wanted to pass through the land of Moab. Uh, they were told not to attack Moab because they were relatives, so they were just to pass through the land. But the Moabite king would not allow them to do that. He hired Balaam to try to curse them. There's all of that um, that, that we can see in, in the Old Testament. Right? So the Moabites couldn't, God wouldn't allow Balaam to curse them. Uh, he ended up blessing them. That gets the king of, of Moab very upset. But Balaam finally convinces, tells them that, well, there is one way you can cause the Israelites, uh, you can bring destruction upon them, and that is if they sin against their God. So the king, under Balaam's counsel, sends beautiful Moabite women down to seduce the Israelites, and they fall for it. And they fall for the seduction of the Moabites, and God brings destruction upon Israel. So there's that bad blood. Israel knows that the Moabites caused their downfall and caused many of the Israelites to, to stumble into sin. And then you've got the times of the judges where there's a Moabite king. You can read about him. He's a big fat man. Right? Um, so fat in scriptures that when the guy actually, when the, when the, you know, the uh, judge actually comes to uh, rescue him, like he thrusts his sword into him. And, and the sword just kind of disappears. Kind of a gross scene that's described in, in the book of Judges. But the Moabites actually oppressed some of the Israelites. Now we don't know which section or which tribe. But all is bad blood. 
Why Moab, Elimelech? Everybody wants to know. We don't know. He chose Moab probably because there's bread there. He's trying to feed his family. So in verse 2, we we're, we're, we're read about Elimelech. Right? We're introduced to this man is named as Elimelech. Uh, and the name of his wife, Naomi, the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judea. So the family's named. Um, Elimelech's name, we think, means God is king, which is kind of irony, given his, um, again, his decisions that he's making. Is he really living that way, that, that God is king? Um, but what's interesting is that the names of, of each of the of the of this family have, have we can piece together something of the, the meaning of their names, but really only Naomi's name is played upon in the drama. Right? So the name, her sons, his sons are named Kilion and Mahon, and some think those names might be weakly and sickly. Um, so, or like even, I mean, just it's, they're not names you would name your children. Um, they're not in children's books, and I don't recommend you name your kids after them. But the author of Ruth really doesn't play upon those. Uh, we know that they end up dying, but that's that's not, he doesn't play on the names. What he does is he plays on the name of Naomi. Naomi's, mean, Naomi's name means pleasant. Right? And at the end of the chapter, she wants to do a name change, and that's very significant. Now, the author specifies not only that Elimelech was from Bethlehem, but he says that Elimelech was, was the, all his clan, was his family was, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judea. Now, what's an Ephrathite? Right? Well, it's it's a, a bit of a debate, but what we can gather is this: the Ephrathites were a local clan, right, of Jews that lived in the area of Bethlehem. So they are all Bethlehemites, right? But this is a specific clan, um, and it's significant. And this is the reason why the author mentions it here. Is, and I say the author, I refer to both the human author and the divine author, right? So the author knows what we do not, at least not yet. First Samuel seventeen twelve tells us that David, King David, flows his line flows through the Ephrathites family of Bethlehem. First Samuel seventeen twelve says, Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. So again, there's those word linkages that, that the author's wanting us to make. Then there's another one, a significant one, in Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2, talking about Christ. So long after David was off the scene, Micah 5.2 says this, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. So the author is wanting us to link what is going on this family with both King David and the ultimate King David, which is Christ our Messiah. So that's the importance, the significance of him putting that that they were Ephrathites. They went to the fields of Moab and remained there. Now, their sojourn, he was just going to find bread. He said, we'll just stay here. I can imagine he said, we'll stay here until there's bread in Israel, and then we'll come back. But notice that word there. They remained there. Things didn't work out exactly like he thought. Likely because the famine lasted longer than he ever thought. 
So that's the setting of of the that's going on before Naomi's emptying. So now the author moves to describe the nature of the events of Naomi's emptying. And you look at verses three to five. So then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Just here we have we have really just a statement of the bare fact. And you put yourself in her shoes. She is living in a in an age where a husband means protection. That a husband means provisions. That a husband would mean even love. And people today don't like the word patriarchy uh, because it's been distorted by sin and, and mischaracterized. But biblical patriarchy is a good thing, not a bad thing. Biblical patriarchy. Where a husband is caring for his wife and his children. But her her husband dies. She's left a widow. And widows were vulnerable. Uh, widows would would uh, just, especially in a land like Moab, that doesn't have laws and protections uh, like Israel would, uh, she was left destitute. And there's an emphasis on that in, in the way that it's stated. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left. Right? And the author's going to use that word again, left. Right? You know, if you had a loved one died, you know that feeling of being left. Where you wish you had been taken as well. But she wasn't. She was left. But there's some hope. She was left with her two sons. And there's a, a bit of a ray of hope for, for Naomi. In that they took for themselves wives. Now, they took Moabite wives. And again, commentators want to just like crush these two sons for taking Moabite wives. And we don't have time to dig into all the details, but it wasn't strictly forbidden in the scriptures for them to take Moabite wives because they were, in fact, related to the Israelites. They weren't one of the nations that was they were forbidden to take wives from. Um, but again, there, there's circumstances. The author doesn't condemn them for this. Right? Uh, Jewish commentators do because they, these boys, as you know, also end up dying. Right? So they say that's the reason they died. But scripture doesn't do that. Right? And I, and I think that sometimes we as Christians can react this way when we when we see someone going through like tremendous suffering. We our our first reaction is to blame them for that. that they must have done something wrong. But when we do that, we end up like Job's worthless counselors. So could could you know their their dilemma, their their punishment. Could, could these circumstances be the result of their sin? Well, yes, there's that potential. But let's not make that our default setting as believers. Right? Let's weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And there's a there's a time and place to ask somebody if they're if if they know of anything. I mean, when I'm when I'm counseling someone who's going through like this, I do ask them at some point. You know, do you know of any sin in your life? That God's convicted you over that that you've just turned your back on, um, and tip, the typical answer is no. It's it's a good question to ask at some point, but it's not the first thing. Right? And and so we we have to realize um, that you have to be people compassionate. I mean, think about God, right? Think about the times of the judges. His the people there didn't didn't. They didn't even like do full full repentance, good, clear repentance, and yet he still provided for them. He was compassionate. He had pity on them. If we have a God who has pity 
on on his people? Can we not be a people of compassion and, and pity those who are going through some very trying circumstances? I think the Lord would have us to do that. So her husband dies. Her sons marry Moabite women. When you're in Moab, I guess you do what Moabites do. right? You marry Moabite women. And from what we can tell, these men married well. They got gems for wives. Um, the significance of being of these of the marriages is that Naomi can see well there's there's going to be some lineage. My husband is gone, but his name will live on. Right? There will be grandchildren that carry on that that blood and that lineage. Right? But that hope is dashed very quickly. Um, after introducing the these two wives, Orpah and Ruth, and we don't know which one was married to to whom. By this text, we know later that Ruth was married to Mahlon. Right? We know that from chapter four. And they even before they these sons died, the author tells us they lived there about ten years. Why is that significant? It's about ten years the whole time they are in Moab. Uh, it's significant because in ten years, we don't know exactly how long the boys were married. These young men were married, but the point of the ten years is to say there should have been kids. There weren't any kids. There weren't any sons. There weren't any daughters. There is no lineage for Naomi. And then her sons die. Again, we're not told why. I wouldn't condemn them. I don't suggest we do that because the text doesn't do that. Were they living in total faithfulness to the Lord? We don't know, but but it, you know, we we just say we'll leave that in the Lord's hands. Both Malon and Kilion died, and the women were left. And again, that word left. She's left. Her husband died. Now her sons die. She's left without her children and her husband. Right? She's alone is what she, she sees. She doesn't yet see the loyalness of her daughter-in-laws, right? especially Ruth. But she's alone. And that's what she's going through. Then you can see Naomi's response. How does Naomi respond? And that's where the author spends a, a lot of time from, from verse 6 to really verse 18. Look at how Naomi Naomi responds. Her first response is to return to Bethlehem. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the fields of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people to give them food. A couple comments here. First of all, is the the author uses the word return. Right? That's a key word in this text. Return, return, return. Even Ruth has talked about returning to Bethlehem, although she had never been there. So I think through what what is the author trying to accomplish with that? What is he signaling with that? A return. But also, um, notice that Naomi had heard in Moab, I don't know what kind of communication they had, but she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people to provide them bread. Now, when the, the scriptures use the term visited, God visited his people, There's um, that could be for judgment, or it could be for blessing. It's used both ways. Right? But we know from the context, visited his people to provide them food, right, that that's, that's a blessing. She had heard that. Right? She had heard that and said, you know what? It's time to go back. Right? So she sets her, her course to go back to Bethlehem, to, to go back to um, Bethlehem to provide bread, to, to live where um, 
where she grew up, and probably she and Elimelech talked about that as speculation, but I imagine they planned that when they heard that the family was over, they would go back. So she's going back to Bethlehem. And on the way, so she arises with, with Naomi goes, with Orpah, with Ruth, and they start walking the road to Bethlehem. But on the way, she starts thinking about her daughters-in-law. And so she tries to, to a series of arguments, she tries to talk them out of going with her. She tries to convince them to go back to Moab, which tells us they were on the road. They were somewhere between Bethlehem and Moab when Naomi had this, had these conversations with them. So Naomi's proposed that her daughters return to Moab. She was releasing them from taking care of her. She was releasing them to, to go to back to their land. So in verses 8 to 10, we see her first try at this. Verses 8 to 10, Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go return each of you to her mother's house. Now that's significant. We don't know all the reasons why, but usually... The Old Testament scriptures say, return to your father's house. But again, it's Naomi talking about returning to her mother's house. Uh, some some commentators believe that's indicating she's saying, go back to your mother's house and, and remarry. And we know that that eventually is what she says. She's, she's giving her blessing to them to do this. But go back to your mother's house. And this is This is quite interesting. Here is a woman who's empty. She's broken. She's alone. And yet she hasn't lost her faith. She still recognizes Yahweh. She says, may Yahweh, all right, that's the covenantal name of God, not used by many Bibles. Usually most Bibles would say Lord there, but just as a reminder, Yahweh is God's personal name. It's the, the name he gave himself. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you have shown with the dead and with me. Now the dead are, are, are her sons. So she, she's commending them. These were faithful women, Orpah and Ruth. They showed loving kindness. That word loving kindness is the word hesed, which is very important in the Old Testament scriptures, and it's important in Ruth. So Orpah and Ruth demonstrated faithful loving kindness to Mahon and Kilion, her sons. And with Ruth, they were very kind to her. They had a wonderful mother-in-law relationship. So it shows you that it can be possible. So... She is commending them. And this, this isn't just like a wish. This expression, may Yahweh show loving kindness, indicates that Naomi, as she is issuing this, at a very minimum, is dependent upon Yahweh. She is calling upon Yahweh to show faithfulness to Orpah and to Ruth in the manner that they had shown faithfulness to Mahlon and Kilion and her. So she's recognizing that, that God rewards those who are faithful. There's a certain extent in which that that is true. And we don't get what we deserve because if we got what we deserve, it would be sin and judgment. But but just looking at it from from a, a, a horizontal viewpoint, right? If someone has been kind to you, they you want God to be kind to them. And so that's what that's what her prayer is. And her second prayer is this: May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Now the word rest is used because Again, a widow in those times didn't have rest. She was vulnerable. She didn't have somebody to provide for her. Um, so they would find rest in the, in the house of her husband. And so she is releasing them. She's saying, go back and get remarried so that you may find rest. She kissed them and they lifted their voices and wept. 
um, she was kissing them goodbye, right? And then they all like just wept together because none of them really wanted that. None of them chose this path. This is something that that they just wanted to avoid at all costs. And she says to to, to go to go back. Um, and yet, look at their answer. Verse ten. They said to her, "No." But we will return with you to your people. So she was unsuccessful at talking them out of this. But then she tries again. Her second proposal goes from verses uh, 11 to 14, a little more extended. Naomi was just not just not encouraging them to go remarry. Now she has to tell them, explain the bleakness of her situation and really the, the hopelessness of their own situation if they go back with her. In verse 11, Naomi said, Return, my daughters. And she's wanting them to return to the land of Moab. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may that may be your husband? She's saying, I'm, I'm not pregnant. Um, I don't have sons in my womb that, that can be uh, husbands, serve as husbands for you. There's no reason to stay with me. Right? There's no hope of ever having a husband in me. And she reiterates that again by, by saying, um, she, she says in verse 12, she says again, return my daughters. Um, Go, for I am too old to have a husband. I'm I'm a widow and I'm beyond the age where anybody's really going to want to marry me. I have nothing to offer them. Is, is really what she's saying. I'm too old to have a husband. And if I said I have hope that I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? She's saying, even if God provided such a man in my life to provide for me and care for me, and even if I if I was was gifted like Sarah, to bear children at an older age, would you wait for those sons? Months? Years? More like two decades? By that time, Orpah and Ruth are beyond childbearing age. She say, no. This doesn't make sense. Go back. Get married. Have children. It doesn't make sense for you to go with me. And and you notice... And, there in verse 13, she recognizes God's providence. She says, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. She didn't say why. But she recognizes God's sovereignty. God's really has directed her through difficult territory. God's hand was in her husband's death. God's hand was in her two sons' deaths. And she recognizes that. And she recognizes the bitterness of that. Right? Um. So here's a woman who hasn't given up on God, but it's a woman with shattered faith. And it's really hard to tell where, she, where she's at with her faith from this particular um, uh, action. I really don't know till much later. So she says, it is more bitter for me than for you. Like for you, there's hope. Yes, it was, it was difficult for you to lose your husbands, but there's hope for you. With me, there's, there's no hope. It's, it's more bitter. And they lifted up their voices again. They're weeping. I mean, this is not this is not like uh, somebody quietly weeping in the corner. I mean, the, the culture of that time, people would wail, shrieks. This is not restraining anything. They lifted up their voices, indicates a, a loud weeping. They wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. What's the significance of that? It wasn't just a kiss saying, I love you. It was a kiss of goodbye. Orpah leaves. 
And the way the author presents it, it's like that's the that is the sensible thing to do. Or Orpah's not condemned for doing this. It's the sensible thing to do. Return your own land so you can get married and have children. Live happily ever after, so to speak. But there's a contrast. Ruth clung to her. Ruth refused to do what was normal. She refused to pursue a life that would be aimed at just pleasing herself. What an amazing young woman she was. She clung to Naomi. And Naomi thought, well, I'm going to have to work harder to convince Ruth not to go. So in verse 15, we see her third attempt. Um, She said, behold, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Like she said, don't you see your sister-in-law? She's she's walking down the road. You may never see her again. Go after her. Go after her. And, And some people want to condemn Naomi for for saying that she's returned after her people and her gods. Right? Again, don't read in the text what's not there. The Moabites um, didn't believe in the one true God, but they did believe in multiple gods. One is the God of Chemosh, who is, he was known as the God of Moab because he was the primary king, uh, primary God of that land. And he actually required child sacrifice. So it's he's... It's and remember that all the false gods that are mentioned in the scriptures are just demons. Hey, these are these are not true gods. So there's you know again commentators can be harsh with Naomi by why are you sending why are you sending Orpah back away from Yahweh? Why are you sending her back to the, this her gods like the multiple gods that the Moabites worshipped? Um, again, I don't think it's proper to condemn Naomi for that. I think it's just reality of the situation. And Orpah, um, she, she, I guess she's back up. She was, at, she was recognizing the fact that the Moabites worshipped other gods than Yahweh, right, as a general rule. So again, we don't know what happens to Orpah. She disappears from the scene. God is certainly capable of, with the, with the seeds of the gospel that, and of, of the one true God that she had heard in this little family, she still could have come to faith in the land of Moab. We just don't know. She, she's not, at this point, uh, she's not important to the story. But Ruth refuses to turn back. You see Ruth's wonderful commitment. Um, Naomi was not able to convince Ruth to leave. So Ruth said, verse 16, do not press me to forsake you. You see how she sees that? It's not returning. And Naomi, Naomi presented it as, this is the natural thing to do, this is the normal thing to do, return, have a good life. But but Ruth would see it as forsaking her mother-in-law. Do not press me to forsake you and turning back and following you. And she gives this wonderful commitment. Uh, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I'll make my home wherever your home is at. Even if it's on the road, no matter where, what what kind of home you have over your head, that'll be my home. But then she says something more significant. Your people shall be my people. I'm a Moabite, but I'll become an Israelite to the best that I can I can do that. And then she says this, and your God, my God. 
Now keep in mind, the people of those times saw their God as reigning in that particular land. So Yahweh was known as the God of Israel, and that was tied to the land. Okay? Now we know that Yahweh is not just the God of Israel, but he was the God of Israel. And so Ruth is, is publicly declaring and transferring her, her loyalty and her allegiance, not just to Naomi, but to the one true God, Yahweh, who was the God of Israel. If she was going to become an Israelite, she would have to have Yahweh as her God. This is probably not the point of her conversion, but it is certainly the point where that, that work that God was doing in her life became evident. Where did all this come from? Where did Ruth get this great theology? God's grace. I mean, did she learn it from Elimelech? Probably not. Did she learn it from Naomi? Doesn't appear so. Did she learn it from her husbands? We don't know. It's like God plucks Ruth as a just as a you know as a brand uh, that's that's headed to hell, and He rescues her and pulls her out and gives her this wonderful understanding of who he is and the ability to communicate and commit herself to her mother-in-law. And she says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Now, it, the, the burial part is 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 uh, important because then she says this. She says, thus may Yahweh do to me and more, if anything but death separates you and me. So she's calling Yahweh to, to invoke a punishment upon her if she's unfaithful to her commitment. So, Again, that's they could receive as, as a prayer that she's committing herself before the one true God to do all these things. But she's committing herself to be with Naomi until Naomi dies. And and the significance of the burial is that the family was buried in the family burial plot, whatever that is. So she was saying, look, long after you're gone, Naomi, long after you're in the ground, I'm going to be buried next to you. I'm going to die and my bones are going to be next to your bones. That's the kind of commitment she had. It wasn't just, I'll take care of you as long as you live. No, it's like, I'm going to honor you even after you're gone. That's the kind of loyalty that Ruth had. That that just just doesn't come out of nowhere. So so Naomi just stops talking. Not really stops talking, but she stops trying to press her, stops trying to convince her to return to Moab. Verse 18, she saw that she was determined to go. She said no more. Then verse 19, they came to Bethlehem. And now it happened and they came to Bethlehem. The city was, was all stirred up. So this is Naomi's empty return to Bethlehem. When it's stirred up, it, it just means that. It means all of Bethlehem was stirred up because of her. They're like, wow, I, I kind of recognize her. Can you imagine the toil uh, working in the fields of Moab? Wasn't an easy life. But then her husband died. And that adds a lot of stress. And then your sons die. And that adds a lot of stress. So she's coming back alone. Without a husband. Without her sons. And she's probably looking bedraggled. To put it lightly. And so they're looking at this. This woman. Is this Naomi? And and again, Bethlehem. They call it a city of Bethlehem. What it means by that is it's a walled, a walled town. It's not a big area. It's a very small area, but it's walled for its protection. And that's why it's called a city. Uh, later, we'll see the city gates and there's some interactions that happen there. But this, the, t- the town really is what we call it, was stirred. 
And she look how she responds, how she interprets her situation. In verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She wants a name change. You know, there, there are several name changes, particularly in Genesis. Uh, but even in the New Testament, we see name changes. God changes a person's name. It's very significant. Well, here, Naomi wants a name change. Why does she want a name change? Because her name, Naomi, means pleasant. Indicating that God has dealt pleasantly with her. She wants her name to be changed to Mara, which means bitter. Because God has dealt bitterly for her. Look at look at what she says, verse 20. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's the word Shaddai. Right? The Almighty. It's almost like an echo of Job. Like when the Almighty brings circumstances against your life, you, you can't resist him. Who can stand against him? Who can argue with him? She's saying the Almighty has brought calamity against me. Right? There's, there's that edge of edge of bitterness in her in her voice. And then in verse 21, her second statement says, I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. She's just empty. She feels empty. Her life's empty. She doesn't know why she's living anymore. She doesn't see the person to the right or left. She stuck her hand out. She would have hit Ruth in, in the ribs. She just stuck on her elbow. She didn't see her yet. She probably thought of Ruth as a liability. Because not only would Naomi have to feed her own mouth, but she would have to try to provide for her daughter-in-law as well. Actually, reverses around. You can see how the circumstances. But Naomi probably wasn't thinking about that. She just probably thought about Ruth being a liability. Was, was Naomi really empty? Well, we know she felt really empty. It's kind of ironic. In the beginning, Bethlehem didn't even have any bread, so they left. So was she, was her stomach full? No. But what she meant by that is she was full of life. She had a loving husband who cared for her, and she had two sons who went with her. They were a family. They were together. But she comes back. Even though there's bread in Bethlehem, she feels empty. Because life is, for her, has, has lost all its meaning. Because her husband has died, her sons have died. And so she just feels totally empty. But it's not actually correct. It's not fully correct, nor is it theolog theologically correct. But that's how she feels. She is totally emptied. And really, for all intents and purposes, she sees no hope of a Limelech's line continuing. Because she has a Moabite. She has this Moabitess with her, Ruth, her daughter-in-law. But what are the chances of an Israelite man marrying a Moabite woman in, in Israel? Slim, because of all that I told you, you know, the reputation of the Moabites, especially Moabite women. So Ruth isn't, isn't, doesn't have a glimmer of hope right now. There is a glimmer of hope in the scene, but she doesn't see it. And that glimmer of hope is, is Ruth. She says, the Almighty has brought calamity against her. Just, just think about the weightiness of that. And then verse 22 serves as a bit of a swing, a swing verse, a hinge verse, tying with what, summarizing what has gone on in the first scene, but also preparing us for what's about to happen in the, in the second scene, which we'll look at next week. So Naomi returned with her daughter, with her, with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, 
who returned from the fields of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of harvest. So the summary is that, is that not only Naomi returns, but also Ruth returns. Why does Ruth, why does the author use the word return for Ruth? Well, I think, and this brings a bit, a bit of speculation, but I think it's because there's such an identification with Ruth. Uh, Ruth so identifies with Naomi that she sees being with Naomi as a return. Um, others have speculated perhaps it's because here you have a, a, a descendant of Lot actually returning to the area where Lot and Abraham were. But I think it has to do with the, her identification with Naomi. She saw herself as an Israelite returning to Bethlehem, even though she was a Moabite. And we'll see that, that that's important as the story develops. Perhaps you have dealt with some uh, been dealt some difficult circumstances um, or know somebody that has, um, we can read the story and just see the hand of God in all of it. In the famine, in their family's trip to Moab, to, to Moab in the fact that these the, Naomi's husband dies, but also the fact that her sons marry excellent wives. And Ruth called that later. That's God's provision. His hand. Through all this, we just need to see that God is sovereign over all details. Even bad decisions. You ever made a decision you regretted? God's still sovereign over that. And usually you regret those decisions because it costs you something. Life's not as good as you thought it was, or whether it's money or relationship. Or something. God's sovereign even over our bad decisions. There's nothing outside God's control. That's, that's what, in a sense, part of the message. One of the subplots of Ruth is that God is in control of all things, even when he's not directly mentioned. There's, there's no rebel molecules outside of God's control. He controls them all. And we need to understand that God will use various kinds of trials in our lives to purify us and test us. The New Testament talks about that. It's not really a matter of if. I wish that's the way it was worded. You know, if you encounter various kinds of trials. But that's not the way that it's worded in the New Testament. It's when you encounter various kinds of trials. Now, thankfully, we don't all face the difficulty that Naomi faced or Job faced. Certainly not. Most of us uh, don't face anything like that. But the question is, how will you respond when these trials come, are you going to respond in, in bitterness? Are you going to just give up on God, so to speak? Or are you going to respond with recognizing the bitterness of your situation, but looking to God to help bring healing and fullness when you feel empty? I, mean, I think what, what you can see is the reality of Naomi's faith. She had shattered faith, but it didn't evaporate. She didn't walk away from God. She didn't curse God. She didn't say, God, I'm done with you. She actually went back to the land of God, Israel. So although she has shattered faith, there's still faith. And so sometimes you might find yourself in a situation where your faith is really, you might describe it as shattered. Don't give up on God. He hasn't give up, given up on you. Look for the rays of hope that he's, that he's placed in your life. And he, he does place that for each one of us. He will provide for us for you and 
for me as we go through these things? Will you follow your shepherd even through the valley of the shadow of death? Or will you decide that you know better and abandon him? He will never abandon you. And so today there might be some of you that have gone through some difficult circumstances and you've come away from that a bit bitter with God because of that. Loss of job, loss of spouse or child. And I just plead with you to look at how, how kind and tender God is. Yes, does he take us through difficult times, deep waters? Yes, he does. There's no denying that. But what you need to see from this is that God is faithful and he will never leave you or forsake you. Your best life is with God. Not your hopes and dreams. Sometimes our hopes and dreams are shattered and we just want to give up. We're mad at God. Because he didn't give us our hopes and dreams. But God is removing those hopes and dreams in order that you might find him holy. Uh, to love him. To worship him. To cling to him. That he might bring refreshment to you. Even if this life is difficult. Even if worst case, you become a martyr and, and, and you're, you, you die. You, you have an eternity of rejoicing with the Lord. So don't, don't abandon God. And, and you just don't know what God's going to accomplish through your suffering. Just take a step back and just say, we know, we know the end of the story, right? So Naomi didn't know at this stage what we know. That he's going to use her suffering to bring about King David. And that there would yet be hope for Naomi. You know, Naomi's so broken, she's empty, she sees no hope or lineage. And at the end, she's holding a child in her hands. And a grandson, yes. But in a sense, this is, a, this is her redemption. This is her lineage. And, and there's emphasis brought on that. I'll just give you a little bit of the big picture. So, you don't know what God's going to do through your suffering. He's not going to tell you ahead of time. He's just saying, trust me. I'll work all things out for good. Because that's what I do. Trust him. And if you don't know God as your Lord and Savior, know that he, he will draw you into his family. Through, if you will just repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and trust him. Your God shall be Yahweh if you do that. And he will care for you and be with you. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. That your loving kindness is everlasting. Thank you that you cared so wonderfully for Naomi through such difficult times. Thank you that you that you helped her. We know you did. Because if we were in similar circumstances on our own, we would just we'd give up and walk away. But you hold us fast. And we praise you for that. You held Naomi fast. And we praise you for that. And you raised up a help for her. A shining example of faithfulness in Ruth. And we thank you that you gave Ruth faith. And that even today, thousands of years later, we talk about Ruth because of what you did through Ruth and raising up Ruth to provide for Naomi and eventually provide a, a son 
that would lead to King David, ultimately leading to King Jesus. Thank you for your sovereignty in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.